This spring, if you'd rather spend time enjoying your lawn instead of trying to keep it alive, there's good news. True Green is the easiest and most affordable way to get a beautiful lawn. All you have to do is water and mow, and they'll do the rest. Weed control, fertilization, aeration, and even some things you might not even think of. They'll do all of it, while you can do literally anything else. With True Green, you could have your lawn looking as good as a putting green. That's not hyperbole. True Green is the official lawn care treatment provider of the PGA Tour. True Green offers a satisfaction guarantee, and they have a verified best price promise, which guarantees you the lowest price with no compromise on quality. You do you. Let True Green do your lawn care. Visit TrueGreen.com to get the best lawn at the best price with the best people guaranteed. This episode is brought in part to you by Audible, your go-to destination for thrilling audio entertainment. Whether you're looking for a hair-raising experience to enjoy while you're on the move or eager to dive into sinister and shocking tales, Audible has an exclusive collection of thrillers from best-selling authors that will keep you on the edge of your seat. Like James Patterson's first audio-only thriller, The Coldest Case. Experience stories like never before, where every chilling detail is brought to life by captivating sound design. Plus, as an Audible member, choose one title a month to make yours forever. And now, new members can try Audible free for 30 days. Just visit audible.com slash WonderyPod or text WonderyPod to 500-500. That's audible.com slash WonderyPod or text WonderyPod to 500-500. Rakuten's Big Give Week is back with 15% cash back. It's a festival of savings at hundreds of stores, including Doc Martens, Ninja Kitchen, and Hotels.com. Prep for summer and save big on beauty, travel, electronics, and more. It's one of Rakuten's biggest cash back events, and it's on May 6th through May 13th. Join today for free and get an extra 10% cashback boost. Go to Rakuten.com or download the Rakuten app today. That's R-A-K-U-T-E-N. Shoppers get it. I'm Jane Pauley, and this is Sunday Morning. The battle lines are drawn in Washington over whether the federal government should be spending any money at all for art's sake. The impact of the Trump administration's proposed end to funding would be felt in communities large and small, perhaps particularly in the small, as Aaron Moriarty will report in our cover story. From the noise of political debate, we'll then turn to the search for peace and quiet. Lee Cowan will be taking us to a place where the watchword quite literally is, shh. How far would you go to find a little natural solitude? How about a six-mile hike in the rain? Who could argue that quiet shouldn't deserve to live here, right? There's a reason he's whispering. Just like there's a reason this man's microphone is in the middle of a muddy marsh. The changing landscapes of nature's soundscapes, later on Sunday morning. We'll be getting an inside look at the outsiders this morning. 
Serena Altschul has a close-up on the classic 1980s teen movie and talks with one of its best-known stars, Rob Lowe. Dairy, have you seen my DX shirt somewhere? It was the role that changed everything for Rob Lowe. If I hadn't been cast in The Outsiders, I wouldn't be an actor, because that was the last train leaving the station for me. You gotta stop yelling at him for every little thing that he does, man. An inside look at The Outsiders. Let's go in. Great. And the woman whose trailblazing book became a breakthrough film ahead on Sunday morning. Then it's on to Sheryl Sandberg, the social media executive whose family trauma a few years back touched people everywhere. She's been talking with Nora O'Donnell. Sheryl Sandberg endured the unimaginable two years ago, the unexpected death of her husband. My daughter was in second grade the year Dave died, and I read what she wrote on the very first day of school, and she wrote, I'm in second grade, I wonder what will happen in the future. And I thought to myself, well, what happened is you lost your dad. Just trying to get through those moments, or even the every day, was hard. Cheryl Sandberg shares her heartbreak and her resilience ahead this Sunday morning. And we have a real blast from the past. Connor Knighton has spotted a retail survivor in a surprising place. Traveling through Alaska, I've seen glaciers and grizzly bears. But this, this may be the rarest sighting of all. A blockbuster video still open for business. Now we get customers coming in and they just walk in and take pictures. And their eyes are like the size of dollar you know, pieces. At its peak, there were once close to 9,000 blockbuster stores. Later on Sunday morning, we head to one of the last ones left. Leslie Stahl has questions for TV documentary legend Sheila Nevins. Steve Hartman introduces us to a young man with hoop dreams. We'll celebrate the birth of William Shakespeare and more. Welcome to Play It, a new podcast network featuring radio and TV personalities talking business, sports, tech, entertainment, and more. Play it at play.it. These very talented members of the New York Youth Symphony are giving their all for art's sake. Their proposed cuts in federal funding for the arts would hurt their program, though not shut it down. But the same can't be said for groups in other parts of the country. Our cover story is from Aaron Moriarty of 48 Hours. Something surprising happening in the Pine Mountains of Kentucky. Like most mining communities, Letcher County has lost thousands of jobs. And yet, how do you account for the new whiskey distillery and restaurant in the county seat of Whitesburg? The renovated buildings, the 15,000-watt radio station. What has helped breathe new life into the decimated coal economy here has little to do with mining. We have 18 full-time employees and five part-time employees. We have over a million dollar payroll annually. This is Apple Shop, 
short for Appalachian Community Film Workshop, a nonprofit art center on the edge of town that exists largely because of federal funding. Well, Apple Shop has been here in this town for um, 48 years, and I think it has been an example of um, the diversified economy we really need in this region. We say Appalachia here, but... 29-year-old uh, Ada Smith, a program director and fundraiser, grew up here. Her grandfather worked in the mines, but because of Apple Shop, her father didn't have to. So this is my dad and my mom here at a on a Steam Deck editing suite. Apple Shop was a seed that grew out of President Lyndon Johnson's war on poverty in the 1960s. Programs were established in impoverished areas to encourage young people to develop new skills in the arts, like filmmaking. By working on these films, it helped me learn more about the place I'm a part of. And um, I think it will uh, cause people to respect other cultures. The film workshop has grown into a diverse and thriving art center where picks and shovels have been replaced by picks and bows. But now, what was started by the 36th president has suddenly been put in doubt by the 45th. This is what we're calling the America First budget. Last month, the Trump administration unveiled a proposed budget that defunds the National Endowment for the Arts, the National Endowment for the Humanities, the Appalachian Regional Commission, and the Corporation for Public Broadcasting, all which provide critical funding to Apple Shop. The National Endowment of the Arts is facing some tough critics in Congress. Many of these agencies have been threatened with extinction the before. In the 1990s, when members of Congress accused the NEA of supporting offensive art, the agency's budget was cut nearly in half. But the Trump administration says this time the cuts aren't about taste, but about taxes and struggling taxpayers. For money, Budget director Mick Mulvaney. Can I really go to those folks, look them in the eye and say, look, I want to take money from you and I want to give it to the Corporation for Public Broadcasting. That is a really hard sell. In fact, something we don't think we can defend anymore. This, despite the fact that altogether funding for these agencies makes up less than two one hundredths of a percent of the federal budget. To me, it is, again, really short-sighted um, and silly. Ada Smith says that, in fact, these federal budget cuts will hurt the people struggling the most in areas that helped elect the president. Letcher County voted four to one for President Donald Trump. The people working on this budget haven't um, spent enough time understanding where these types of federal resources go and how much they're needed in communities like this. With grants from the NEA, Apple Shop filmmakers have turned the local culture into indelible images. Started out farming and bought a mule for $125 then. Apple Shop archivist Carolyn Rubens. These are the Holyfields. He worked in the coal mines and they raised 11 children and lived in Jenkins, which is about 20 minutes from here. Without federal funding, will this important part of American history and heritage be lost? For 20,000 years, human beings have been making art. Uh, that, that
that, that streak is not going to end in 2018 if the NEA goes away. David Marcus is the artistic director for a theater company in Brooklyn, New York. Surprisingly, he supports the cuts. Marcus says that even small government grants interfere with the free market by giving recipients an unfair edge. So when the federal government comes in and gives ten or $15,000 to one company and not other companies, they're really putting a heavy thumb on the scale. Yes, theaters may fail, Marcus says, but others will simply take their place. But what guarantee do you have it in a place like Whitesburg, Kentucky? What guarantee you have anything that will take that place? I, I, I don't have a guarantee. So it'll just go? Things go, yes. I mean, this, this, is, this is the nature of the world. This is the nature of art. Art needs subsidy to be alive. You cannot just have the marketplace determining what is, what it, what is done. Rocco Landisman is a Broadway theater producer and former chairman of the NEA. He worries that without subsidies, challenging, daring art will never be produced. Case in point. If you came to me and said, uh, I've got this hot idea for a musical about Alexander Hamilton and the Founding Fathers, and it's going to be done in rap and hip-hop, I would say as a commercial producer, my first take would be, really? I'm past patiently waiting, I'm passionately smashing The reality is... Uh, I'm a Puerto Rican guy who writes musicals, and that's not very common. Lin-Manuel Miranda pulled off the impossible. He's the creator of that Broadway musical Hamilton, perhaps the greatest theater sensation of the decade. As an artist, you're grateful for any opportunity, any crack in the door. Miranda credits the success of Hamilton and his first musical, In the Heights, to federally subsidized theaters that took a chance. At every formative stage, I can point to um, public funding of the arts as, as making that possible. My, my first job uh, was as an intern for WNET, that's the PBS affiliate in New York City. My first uh, musical uh, was workshopped at the O'Neill Musical Theater Center, uh, which uh, is partly funded uh, by the NEA. And it wasn't just the NEA. I grew up loving musicals. I had parents who loved musicals, and we never had money to go see Broadway shows. I think I saw three, maybe, before I was an adult. But because of PBS Great Performances, I saw Into the Woods, uh, and it changed my life. And that, says Miranda, is the point, to give children who otherwise wouldn't have it access to the arts. Like 11-year-old Jamin Radosevich, and his older sisters, Samantha and Grace, in Letcher County, Kentucky. Apple Shop is the reason they've been able to take music lessons. If you hand me an instrument, I want to learn how to play it, so I was excited when I could learn the fiddle. The costs of funding these programs are only a tiny fraction of the federal budget, but not funding them, Ada Smith says would cost Americans much more. We try to tell the stories of the people and amplify their voices, their lives, their stories. When you take away that type of federal support, you start leaving out tons, millions of voices in this country that are unheard. Happy birthday to the bard.
muse of fire. And now a page from our Sunday morning almanac. A kingdom for a stage, princes to act, and monarchs to behold the swelling scene. April 23rd, 1564, 453 years ago today. The day traditionally given for the birth date of the great English playwright William Shakespeare. The humble home in which he was born is the pride of Stratford-upon-Avon, a town jam-packed with tourists when Sunday morning visited back in 1987. By his 30s, he was in London and a published playwright. In 1599, Shakespeare and his acting company opened the Globe Theatre, the stage for many of his best-known works. He wrote 38 plays in all, including Hamlet, with its famous graveyard scene, performed by Laurence Olivier in the 1948 film adaptation. Alas, poor Yorick. I knew him, Horatio. A fellow of infinite jest, of most excellent fancy. William Shakespeare died on April 23rd, 1616, his 52nd birthday, no less, and is buried at Stratford's Holy Trinity Church. His dramas and comedies continue to be performed on stages around the world, not least at this recreation of Shakespeare's Globe Theatre, which opened in 1997. There, as Shakespeare himself would have it, the play's the thing. I want you to listen to your feet, okay? Just the sound of our footsteps? Yeah, yeah. In Search of Silence, next. Shh. On this Earth Day weekend, we're in search of the quietest places in the land. Quiet places that are becoming less quiet every day. Lee Cowan has found the perfect guide. The trail is narrowing and it will continue to narrow as we go up. This might sound a little odd, but Gordon Hempton may be the first person I've ever met who truly feeds his soul through the holes in his ears. I want you to listen to your feet, okay? Just the sound of our footsteps? Yeah, yeah. To him, nothing is more nourishing than pure, unpolluted, natural, quiet. So coming out here in the quiet it's almost like taking a vitamin for you. Oh, vitamin Q. It's vitamin, good stuff. Vitamin Q. You can't buy it, but you can have it. Sound of nature is very definitely an endangered species. We first met Gordon 27 years ago. We've also compromised on our ability to, to sense peace. When Sunday morning followed him around as he went about recording silence. You get down low and you can hear the whoa, 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 of the power of the surf being interpreted by this driftwood piece. He calls himself the sound tracker. He's been all over the world listening to nature's soundscapes, and after all those years... All right, Lee, here it is, the boardwalk. ...claims to have found one of the quietest spots in the lower 48 states. It's in the middle of the Ho Rainforest in Washington's Olympic National Park. 
getting there is an adventure in being wet. The average rainfall here is anywhere between 12 and 14 feet. Yes, feet. But its soggy remoteness is actually the point. Gordon considers its silence so sacred, he won't allow anyone to utter a word. Ah, yeah. So in a, f a little bit further, I'm going to look at you. I'm going to give you the look. And that means no whispering even. Okay. okay. We won't talk. We're just going to go listen to the silence. He calls it one square inch of silence, a project he started on Earth Day 12 years ago. It's his auditory line in the sand, a place he's trying to protect from all outside noise. Now, you might think that'd be a pretty easy task, way out here in the middle of nowhere, but... There is no middle of nowhere if you take into account the sky. As we talked just outside his one square inch of silence, we heard no fewer than five jets in less than an hour. Listen what happens as that jet passes and grows louder and louder to the distant sound of the hoe, which defines this valley against the mountainside. You just don't hear it anymore. It disappears. Even the raindrops I can't hear anymore. Yeah, you can't hear the raindrops. To Gordon, it's only getting worse. I think it'd be very difficult in the continental United States to find a place where you could go a day without hearing a noise, or even, even an hour without hearing noise. Kurt Fristrup is with the National Park Service's Natural Sounds and Night Skies Division. Yes, there really is such a thing. Over the last decade, its scientists have placed hundreds of microphones in landscapes all over the country. Surveys show over 90% of the people who come to commune with nature come just as much for their ears as their eyes. It's critical for people, for the quality of our experience, for the quality of our health, to provide these quiet places in the landscape where we can take refuge from the trials and stresses of everyday life and immerse ourselves in a natural world that's a little bit kinder and gentler to us. But the noise we humans make, he says, is making it harder to find those places. And it's having real consequences for wildlife as well. You know, if you're the mouse trying to avoid being eaten, if, there's, if, if your hearing is masked by noise, that means the predator can get that much closer to you before you're aware of it. You might be surprised at just how far a single piece of noise can travel in the quiet of nature. Rangers at Glacier National Park, for example, we're getting complaints from hikers way out in the backcountry that they could hear motorcycles, even though there were no roads for miles. This is Lake McDonald, which is, I think, about 10 miles long. So Kurt was dispatched see how, to see if that was possible. And according to acoustic modeling, it was. You'll see as it comes out of this pass down towards the lake, the is, noise will spread all the way across the lake. And then that might be 15 miles, maybe farther. Again, that's one motorcycle. Even if you don't perceive it as noise, they're still preventing you from hearing all the other sounds that, that we would like to preserve for you. So we're trying to record red-legged frogs, which is... Bertie Krause is trying to preserve nature's sounds, too. In fact, he's got some 5,000 hours of recordings, all meticulously documented in his studio near Napa Valley. So here's the Pacific chorus frogs. Oh, 
It was really loud. Couldn't hear ourselves talk. No. What he's discovered by sheer volume is that in many of the places he set up his microphones, the voice of the natural world has changed. Well, I've taken a look at my archive recently, and I think that over 50% of what I've recorded no longer exists. Either it's altogether silent, or it no longer exists in any of its original form. He points to this recording he made in a Costa Rican rainforest back in 1989. He went back to that same spot 10 years later, after much of the nearby area had been logged. And this time, it sounded like this. It's dramatic. This great animal orchestra, as he calls it, has a lot to say. The early morning chorus of songbirds at California's Sugarloaf Ridge State Park is one of his favorites. What these critters are doing is they're telling us how they're feeling about this particular time and place. And it's a narrative, it's a story. A story Bernie says is being composed by nature every day. We just need to stop and listen. It used to be the Environmental Protection Agency did that, but in the 80s, the Office of Noise Abatement was closed, and with it, most of the federal government's ears, save the National Park Service, which leaves the listening largely to folks like Bernie and, of course, Gordon. When we left him at his one square inch of silence, he was diligently taking notes, and every once in a while, smiling at the tiniest of sounds and wincing at the ones he wishes weren't there at all. We save what we love at any cost. So when we fall back in love with planet Earth, that is when the environmental crisis will be solved. What were your initial thoughts? Next, Cheryl Sandberg turning a new page. Welcome to Play It, a new podcast network featuring radio and TV personalities talking business, sports, tech, entertainment, and more. Play it at play.it. Cheryl Sandberg is one of social media's top executives. She's also the mother of two who not so long ago suddenly found herself a widow. She talks with Nora O'Donnell of CBS this morning. Dave was my rock. Dave was my best friend long before we dated. And then we got married and had two amazing children. He was the one who always told me everything would be okay. And then one day it wasn't okay because he wasn't there. On that day, nearly two years ago, Cheryl Sandberg's husband, 47-year-old tech entrepreneur Dave Goldberg, died while exercising at a Mexican resort. What were your initial thoughts? I mean, what did you think had happened? I thought he had fallen off an exercise machine, and that was what the initial report said. But then we got an autopsy, and the autopsy showed that he died of coronary artery disease. He had a cardiac arrhythmia, so he died before he hit the floor. Sandberg, the chief operating officer of Facebook and author of Lean In, her controversial manifesto on women in the workplace, faced her toughest challenge. I flew home and told my children, they were seven and ten, that they'd never see their father again. 
And as anyone who's ever been through something like this will tell you, it feels like you're not going to get through, you know, a minute, let alone an hour, let alone a day. Friends and family rallied around her. My rabbi, he told me to lean into the suck. Lean into the lean suck. Lean into the suck. And I thought, that is not what I meant when <laughs> I said lean in. But it was really good advice. Because what he was telling me is, this, this is going to suck. Don't fight it. My kids and I wrote family rules the first week. And our very first family rule was respect our feelings. It's okay to feel angry. It's okay to feel sad. It's okay to feel jealous of other kids. It's okay for them to feel jealous of me because I still have a father and they don't. Something that I'm so grateful I have my father, but I can't believe my children don't have one and I do. I'm so much older than they are. Yeah. 30 days after Goldberg's death, Sandberg went public with her grief on Facebook. When tragedy occurs, you can give in to the void, she wrote, or you can try to find meaning. You can kick the of option B. Where did that phrase come from? A few weeks after Dave died, there was a father-son activity, and I was sitting there with my friend Phil trying to figure out who could go with our son. And we figured it out, but then I just looked at him and I said, I want Dave. I want Dave to do this with our son. And he said, option A is not available, so let's just kick the out of option B. Sandberg is sharing what she learned about coping with grief in her new book, Option B, Facing Adversity, building resilience, and finding joy. She co-wrote it with psychologist and author Adam Grant. You write in the book about how just ordinary events became landmines. Yeah, totally. Like school, school events. School events. My daughter was in second grade the year Dave died, and I read what she wrote on the very first day of school, and she wrote, I'm in second grade. I wonder what will happen in the future. And I thought to myself, well, what happened is you lost your dad before she finished second, second grade. And just trying to get through those moments or even the every day was hard. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Sandberg and Grant write about the pitfalls to coping with tragedy, blaming yourself, not recognizing what's still good in your life and believing the trauma will last forever. And you know, we can find things to be grateful for. So one thing that happened is Adam one day said to me, it could be way worse. And I looked at him like, are you crazy? I just lost my husband suddenly. How could it be worse? And he said, Dave could have had that same cardiac arrhythmia driving your children. Oh my gosh. I mean, you say that and it's true. That can happen and happens to people. And I thought immediately, oh my God, my kids are alive. I'm good. Before her husband's death, Sandberg might have been the least likely person to talk about coping with adversity. At 29, she was the chief of staff to Treasury Secretary Lawrence Summers. She was a vice president at Google. And in 2008, Mark Zuckerberg asked her to be his number two at the social media giant Facebook. Everyone works in basically one room, one big open room. Mark sits at his desk. Today, she's a billionaire and one of the most powerful businesswomen in America. Were you nervous about coming back to work? Yeah. It wasn't just that I was so grief-stricken. It was that really no one knew what to say to me. Mm -hmm. And for a lot of people, I think they were afraid of saying the wrong things. They just said nothing at all. Mm -hmm. And so I started to feel more and more and more isolated. The woman who wrote the book on building up women's self-confidence had lost her own. And one of the suggestions Adam made was 
write down three things you did well before you go to sleep. I had a little notebook by my bed, and at first it was ridiculous. There was nothing I was doing well. Made tea. Had fewer diet sodas. I mean, they were really a sad list of things. And just the practice of writing down three things that went well, and that was the last thing I thought of at night, really helped build up my self-confidence. Option B is meant as a guide, not just for those dealing with adversity, but for those around them as well. I used to say to anyone who was facing anything, is there anything I can do? Anything at all. And I meant it. It was coming from a really good place. Right. But when you say that, it shifts the burden to the person to figure out what you can do. And you don't know what to ask for, like the big things, the small things. Can you make sure my children and I are never alone on a holiday? Because our little family of three feels really small. I can't ask for that, you know. But if you do something, you are showing people you are there for them. When you say people at work didn't know what to say to you, what have you learned about what they could or should have said that might have been helpful? The most important thing is to acknowledge the pain. And I got this completely wrong before. I thought that if someone was going through something hard, it was really up to them to talk about it. And if I brought it up, I was reminding them. Or invading their privacy or yes. bringing up a bad topic or whatever. Yeah, bringing up a bad topic, reminding them. That's ludicrous. I couldn't be reminded. To this day, I can't be reminded that I lost Dave. I know I lost Dave, and I know it every day. Lean in team. We first met Dave Goldberg four years ago when we sat down with Dave and Cheryl in their home for 60 minutes in their only joint television interview. She's an incredible mom. She's, a, she's also a great, you know, sister, daughter, partner. She's incredible with all of her relationships. She doesn't it was clear then things. how much she relied on him. One of the things you said then was, you cannot have a full career and a full life at home with your children if you're also doing all the homework and all the child care. Yeah. When I wrote Lean In, I hadn't really <laughs> ever thought enough about what it was to be a single parent. I don't think I got it. Being a single mother, even for me, with all the resources I have, is much harder than I ever imagined. The last chapter in your book is to love and laugh again. Mm -hmm. Have you been able to do that? I've had to work hard at finding laughter. Even jokes early on made me kind of gasp in shock, like, oh my god, I just made a joke. I was uh, watching TV with my sister-in-law. And I kind of blurted out, well, at least I don't have to watch Dave's bad TV shows anymore. And then I just froze in horror, like, oh, my God. But then we laughed. For the past year, Sandberg has been dating video game CEO Bobby Kotick. When it was revealed that you were in another relationship, did you feel judged? I did. I mean, some people judged me, but the people closest to me were supportive. We judge people, but particularly women, very harshly often when they date after loss, and that's not fair. Just as Lean In spawned some 30,000 support groups worldwide, Sandberg hopes Option B will create a global community to help people build resilience. Because in some way, we are all living Option B. No one's life is perfect. And the question is, when things go wrong, then what? And I learned so much from Dave's death, things that I wish so much I could go back and share with him. But I don't have that option, but I do have the option to live every day with the joy I would have had had I known Dave and I had so few years. And I do have the option of helping other people learn those lessons if possible, and that's what I'm hoping Option B does.
Now, an abbreviated look at the Bill O'Reilly controversy by the numbers. The 67-year-old O'Reilly was a Fox News Channel host for 21 years. His audience averaged some 4 million viewers a night, making him the number one personality in all of cable news. His show, The O'Reilly Factor, grossed nearly $120 million in advertising revenue in just the first nine months of last year. Then, several weeks ago, the New York Times reported that five women had received payments settling sexual harassment charges against O'Reilly, charges he has denied. In the days that followed, more than 50 advertisers abandoned the O'Reilly show. And on Wednesday, parent company 21st Century Fox announced it was ousting him while giving O'Reilly a rumored $25 million payout. As for his accusers, the Times reports they received a total of $13 million to settle their charges. It's no mirage. For a lot of people, they haven't seen a Blockbuster store in maybe five or six years. We pay a visit to Blockbuster ahead. Call it a blast from the past. This familiar logo seems long ago, but it's still a part of the landscape in America's far north. Connor Knighton has the proof. And look at that. Look at nice and beautiful. There you go. All right, thank you. Good to go. Look at that. I know, it's a collector's item now. Got my own Blockbuster card. I carry business cards with me, and surprisingly enough, I can't tell you how many business cards I've given out to people because they literally do not believe that I'm from Blockbuster. <laughs> it's like, there it is right there, hello. Kevin Daymude is the manager of a Blockbuster video in Anchorage, Alaska. The new releases are new, the candy is fresh, but it feels like a place from another era. So you've been here 26 years. That means you were in the era of people bringing back cassette tapes, right? Oh, of, of VHSs. Having to VHSs. Be kind, rewind. We had stickers on there. Maybe we should rewind for a minute. You've seen the headlines. Blockbuster went bankrupt in 2010. It closed its last 300 stores in 2013. So how is this even possible? For a lot of people, they haven't seen a Blockbuster store in maybe five or six years. Back when Blockbuster shut down, franchise owner Alan Payne decided to keep his doors open. Today, he owns nine of the last 12 Blockbusters left in the entire country. There were once over 9,000 worldwide. Almost half of the families in the entire country were going in a video store every week. I don't know of any other industries that have gone from nothing to just a, an integral part of the culture that fast. Welcome to Blockbuster Video. The first Blockbuster opened in 1985. By 1989, one was opening every 17 hours. The stores were racking up millions of dollars of profit in late fees alone. Take care of a nice day. In 1999, actress Renee Russo and a guy dressed up like a giant videotape rang the opening bell for Blockbuster's IPO. But two years earlier, another video rental company was founded. Netflix. In 2000, Blockbuster had the opportunity to buy Netflix for $50 million. Today, it's worth $60 billion. 
Blockbuster was convinced at the time that they could compete with Netflix, and rather than buy them, they wanted to compete with them. Say hello to Blockbuster. They deliver movies right to your mailbox. But by the time Blockbuster launched its own DVD by mail service, it was too little, too late. Netflix and Redbox had already moved customers away from the stores. And when high-quality video streaming came along, they never had to leave the couch. There were once close to 60,000 employees wearing the blue and yellow. Now, Kenai Malay is one of just a handful left. This is something that you don't really see on Netflix. There's no restocking yeah, on Netflix. Yeah, there's no either. restocking on Netflix, for sure. Kenai works at a blockbuster in Wasilla, hometown of Sarah Palin. Here, like in the rest of Alaska, internet's expensive. When you're getting charged by the gigabyte, the video store can actually offer a better deal. Five days on both. Mm -hmm. And during the cold, dark winters, they can be community gathering places. I feel like a lot of the customers just want to come in and feel like they're someone special. They love the customer service. They love the interaction. It's a chance to get a recommendation from a person instead of from a computer. To stroll instead of scroll. The shopping experience of looking for a movie on a screen versus coming in here and seeing literally 10,000 titles, there's no comparison. At these final few blockbusters in the last frontier of Alaska, the employees all know how this movie ends. They're just trying to pause and enjoy it while it lasts. Steve Hartman holds court. They'll start picking teams, and I will be the only one left out. Next. Welcome to Play It, a new podcast network featuring radio and TV personalities talking business, sports, tech, entertainment, and more. Play it at play.it. Many a young athlete entertains hoop dreams. Few, if any, have tried as hard to make them come true as the kid our Steve Hartman has gone to see. Every week, he set himself up for disappointment. Every week, 13-year-old Jamarian Stiles came to this community center in Boca Raton, Florida, hoping to play basketball with the other kids. And every week, he was rejected. They'll start picking teams, and I would be the only one left out. And then they'll just tell me, just go home and stuff. You can break someone's heart like that. The problem was obvious to everyone but Jamarion. He lost his hands and most of his arms as an infant due to a rare bacterial infection. But he insisted that was no reason to give up his hoop dreams. What about soccer? Have you heard of that sport? Yeah, hear it every day. Why don't you play soccer? That just seems like the obvious thing. You would think that I would be good at soccer. I'm really not. I'm horrible. <laughs> Which is why, on the first day of class here at Eagles Landing Middle School, Jamarian took his case to basketball coach Darian Williams. Yeah. Said he wanted to be on the team this year. I said, all great, well, just make sure you try out. But you say, okay, great, but what are you really thinking? <laughs> this man has no arms. Yeah. How is he going to play basketball? But, man, he told me, Mr. Williams, I've never been on a team before. Even if I don't play, I just want to be on the team. And how could I say no to that? And that's how the Eagles got their first armless basketball player. Jamarian, number two there, quickly earned a reputation as the hardest worker on the squad. He was usually the first one in the gym, usually the last one to leave. Still, he sat on the bench most of the season. Try one more. Until last month. Coach put him in the game with about six minutes left. 
And when he eventually got the ball on the far side of the court, everyone yelled, shoot it! So he did, and sank a three-pointer. And if you didn't quite see that, don't worry, because shortly after, he got the ball again, this time on the near side, for another three-pointer. At the buzzer. Jamarian Styles, the kid no one would pick, was now everyone's hero. Needless to say, today, Jamarian can play all he wants at the community center. He just made the volleyball team and has every intention of playing football next year. Really, the only thing he won't play is the victim. If I could wave a magic wand right now and give you your arms back, would you want them? I don't need them. <laughs> you don't need them? No. Who needs hands when you've got this kind of touch? Still to come, Rob Lowe, Inside, The Outsiders. The Outsiders was my last audition that I was going to do before I sort of gave it up. And later... Oh, come on, guys, this is great. Meet the grand dame of documentaries. Just like sometimes I had to get out. It's like a middleman in a tug-of-war or something between you guys. It's Sunday morning on CBS. And here again is Jane Pauley. We go inside The Outsiders now with one of the stars of that widely admired film, Rob Lowe. Serena Altschul helps us understand why, a third of a century after its release, the movie's glow is undiminished. They didn't hurt you too bad, did they? For fans of the 1983 coming-of-age film, The Outsiders, maybe the only thing better than watching the movie... Ain't gonna hurt you no more. ...is watching it with Rob Lowe. Yeah, what scene is this? I think this is the first time you meet the entire cast. I was a kid. How handsome Matt is. Matt legit looks like a movie star. Frankly... You are all ridiculously handsome. Let's be... It's a good group. It is. I mean, it's a good group. A cast of heartthrobs and Hollywood stars in the making. Along with Lowe, there's Matt Dillon, Patrick Swayze, Emilio Estevez, C. Thomas Howell, Ralph Macchio. Yeah? And recognize him? Yep, that's Tom Cruise. thinking, how about you and Sylvia coming over to game with us tomorrow night? What, Tom's prosthetic teeth? Yeah, but he hasn't taken his fake tooth out yet. He did that. does that after the rumble. Directed by Francis Ford Coppola, <laughs> The Outsiders didn't just help launch careers. You gotta stop yelling at him for every little thing that he does, man. For then 18-year-old oh, Lowe, it saved his. And The Outsiders was my last audition that I was going to do before I sort of gave it up. Derry, have you seen my DX shirt somewhere? If I hadn't been cast in The Outsiders, I wouldn't be an actor, because that was the last train leaving the station for me. Lowe holds the film close to his heart, and a big reason is the woman who came up with the story more than half a century ago. Susie was able to capture a moment in everybody's life that everybody will have, and that is that adolescent striving for the next chapter, which is what The Outsiders is about. There's always going to be an audience for that, and there always has been an audience for that. He's talking about Susan Eloise Hinton, Essie Hinton to her legions of readers, the initials a suggestion from her editors. 
they said, we're wondering if you'd use your initials SE on this because we're afraid the first reviewers will pick up the book, see what the content matter is, and review it with a bias. Oh. Like, a girl wouldn't know anything about this. In fact, she knew plenty. The Outsiders was published in 1967. Fifty years later, it's considered a classic and a pioneer in the young adult fiction category. The Outsiders has sold more than 10 million copies. It's been translated into dozens of languages and is part of the core curriculum in schools across the country. And to think, Hinton started writing it when she was only 15. Well, it was about 40 pages long, single-space typed. And then I did most of the work on it my junior year in high school, where I made a D in creative writing. You got a D in creative writing. Well, I was writing it, yes. Now 68, Hinton took us back to that very school in Tulsa, Oklahoma, the city she was raised in and still calls home. Everybody had their own little space to hang out in. Oh. And the Sochas hung out down here at this entrance. The Outsiders is about adolescent angst and the battles between two groups, the affluent socias, short for socials, and the lower-class greasers centered around the Curtis brothers, Pony Boy, Daryl, and Soda Pop, played by Lowe in the film. You have to understand, for me, look, I'm 53 years old, right. and I can walk out of this building, down the street, and there will be a 12-year-old girl who will go, soda pop! And they know like, who you are. You're 12. So what is it about soda pop, I mean, and Pony Boy, that resonates with so many people? The world's biggest fans, first of all, are girls, for the outsiders. And I think at the age they're reading it, mm-hmm. think about it, they're 7th and 8th grade girls. Right. And they're reading the outsiders, and they're going, oh, so this is what is boys right? are really like. You know, I get so many letters from all kinds of people saying, you know, your book changed my life. And that scares me, frankly, because who am I to change anybody's life? The only way I can deal with the impact the Outsiders has had worldwide is to think it was meant to be written. I got chose to write it, and it's out there. The movie was shot almost entirely in Tulsa. This was the home of the Curtis brothers. It's now being turned into a museum. Well, let's go in. Great. In the movie, it's, you know, kind of larger, larger than life. Let's go in, brother. We're home. They were all little. Rob had his 18th birthday over on this set. Where the hell have you been? Do you know what time it is? Well, it's 2 o'clock in the morning, kiddo. Hey, Pony, where have you been? Fell asleep in the lot. You what? Hinton was a special advisor to Francis Ford Coppola during the filming. To the young actors, she was something more. She embraced us. She made us feel safe. Mm-hmm. Um, she helped us navigate the very complicated Francis world. And she loved us. You were everything to these kids. Yeah, I loved it. I loved every minute. God, she used to get on me from my Southern California speak. She once bet me $60 that I couldn't make it through lunch without saying the word gnarly. Gnarly. Oh, my God, so gnarly. When Francis had a shooting this scene, it was so gnarly. 
<laughs> I don't think I made it through lunch. I think I still owe her the 60. Stay gold, pony boy. What is so enduring about The Outsiders? Why does it connect with young people? John, come on. For Hinton, it's simple. When you reread the book, at least I do, I just think it's so over the top emotionally. I would never have the nerve to write that unselfconsciously again. But at that time, that was exactly the way I felt. And I think that's one reason why kids identify so strongly they, they you know they go oh, I felt like that Thank you so much. you're welcome hi Hinton has fans the world over one of her biggest has a message what do you say to her after all these years I would say thanks for for being a mom when when we all needed one next Meet the woman behind this. I go by Ed. Edward Joseph Snowden's the full name. And this. We have a round of questions and answers this morning with Sheila Nevins. And if your question is, who's Sheila Nevins? Leslie Stahl of 60 Minutes is happy to oblige with the answer. So how many documentaries? Could you ever count up all the ones that you've been... In my life? In your life? Oh, maybe 1,200, 1,300. In the land of documentaries, one woman rules, Sheila Nevins. For more than three decades, Nevins has been in charge of documentaries for HBO, overseeing films that have shined a bright light on everything from Syria to Scientology, the environment to Alzheimer's. I am your wife. Are you ready? Mm-hmm. She's been recognized for her work with enough awards to fill a room. I think the text At the age of 78, Sheila Nevins is still in the screening room most days, fully engaged. A free and independent nation in defiance of the crown. We sat in on a session for a new documentary Nevins commissioned by Alexandra Pelosi. I'm not sure I know what I'm watching, but I'm not bored. It's a reading of the Constitution, the Declaration of Independence, and the Bill of Rights. Oh, come on, guys. This is great. Is it true that your basic criterion is not boring? Oh, without question. Is that number one? Absolutely. This is fine. I'm not, I'm not bored yet. I'm a little bored. She's the patron saint of documentaries. All filmmakers come to Sheila first. That's the holy grail. How do you feel about having a narrator? I think that would be the worst idea I ever heard of but in then my life. What do you know? Is she really as tough as I've heard she is? She's honest. Do you quake? You either are going to hear it from Sheila or you're going to hear it from a critic. Who do you want to hear it from? I'd rather get it in the edit room. But no, there's no sugarcoating. There's, there's no sugar. softening the blow. No softening the blow. And Nevins doesn't sugarcoat subjects like her facelift or her anxieties in a new collection of essays she calls You Don't Look Your Age and Other Fairy Tales. It's either an expose, a memoir, an obituary. An obituary? A dalliance. A self-obituary? Could be. Ooh. She studied drama in college, then landed jobs at the U.S. Information Agency, then ABC and CBS, working her way up the ladder with a strategy she openly admits involved fooling around in the office. Who admits that? Well, I mean, I don't know that I slept my way to the top, but I did not sleep with my bosses in the early days. 
when they wanted me. <laughs> and how is that different from sleeping your way to the top <laughs> if you slept with well, your boss? There weren't so many people. There weren't. There weren't that many. No, there weren't that many. But there's more than one. Yes. I was wicked when I could be. But wicked gave way to woke up as Nevins watched the rise of feminism and one woman in particular. Here you were promiscuous, flirtatious, seductive. And then there's Gloria Steinem. Yes. She hits you right in the face. Yes, like with ice. It just splashes you in the face and you say, why have I done this? Why am I wearing tight jeans to work? Why am I starving myself on the, some diet? Why am I sleeping you know? with the boss? Why am I sleeping with the boss? Uh, and why am I thinking that's the way to go up? And it was the way. It worked. I would love to say it didn't work. It would be so appropriate. So now. But it worked. But she changed, accepting the feminist message. And that started a climb up the ladder on her own merits, all the way to creating the acclaimed documentary unit at HBO. But she never forgot that sex works. Have you ever heard of HBO Taxicab Confessions? Yeah. No, you're not. And so she developed popular series like Real Sex and G-String Divas. You had no problem with it? None. Although I was criticized by my colleagues, especially those when I left CBS. Like, how could you? How, how could, could you? I? Why not? Well, who is getting hurt? The it, real pornography of life is living without health care. It's not sliding up and down a pole for a buck. The large audiences attracted by skin on the screen gave Nevins enough skin in the game to explore more serious subjects. We have to start being powerful or we are going to die. It is up to us right now. There's medicine before Larry Kramer and then there's medicine after Larry Kramer. One measure of how her stature and influence have grown, she got A-listers to record her audiobook, like Meryl Streep, who read about the scars left by Nevin's mother. My mother was hard on me. I never seemed to do anything right. I was not special to her. You were not special to your mother? Not really, no. No. Really? No. I was a daughter. I once asked her why I was sure? a... Yes, I'm positive. She's dead. You can't ask her. I once asked her why she wanted to have children so badly, and she said who would pick her up at the airport. My mother was born with an awful disease called Raynaud's phenomenon. Her mother suffered from Raynaud's, which affects circulation to the hands and feet. Usually, it causes minor discomfort. For Nevin's mother, it was major. In very severe cases, which is what she had, your extremities become gangrenous, they atrophy, they break off, they, be, you know, they die. So it's a kind of slow so extremity. she was amputated, right? By the time she died, she had one leg, one arm, three fingers, so she was really quite mutilated. I grew up fearful of decay. Which sets the stage for the chapter she asked me to read. The story I read is what I think is the nub of the book gliding gracefully into gravity. This is where you confess your terror about aging. Right. This aging terror. I have enough Botox in me to detonate a ran. True. <laughs> but you look so good. Yeah, but it's not me. And then you went on to say, the secret is I don't want to say goodbye. Mm -hmm. I'm angry that it's almost over. Wow. That hit me with a wallop. 
You feel that way? I'm better than you are at, you know, putting blinders on, not thinking. Yeah. I'm angry. No, it just seems unfair. I'm not afraid anymore. And now I can't continue. Look. But she is continuing. Don't I look good? Adding to an astonishing body of work. One thing you can say about Sheila Nevins, she hasn't been boring. You must feel great. No. You should. I'm, I'm, I think Aw, I didn't shucks. waste, no, not annoying. I think I didn't waste much time because I always knew time was very precious. Ahead, batter up. Baseball's defending world champions have no greater fan than our contributor Scott Simon of NPR, author of the new book, My Cubs, A Love Story. My Uncle Charlie is at the center of a great American painting, and he hated it. The Dugout by Norman Rockwell, the September 4, 1948 cover of the Saturday Evening Post. Charlie Grimm, the old Chicago Cubs manager, who was married to my Auntie Marion, is the forlorn face in the middle of the bench. Charlie thought that Rockwell had made him look like a basset hound. Rockwell started sketching during a doubleheader between the Cubs and the Boston Braves in May 1948. The Cubs lost both games and would finish last in the National League. They usually did. The downcast bat boy was a Boston kid who had to be cajoled into wearing a Cubs jersey for art's sake. The painting plays in our imagination. Who knows what cubby clumsiness has made Uncle Charlie and his boys grimace. Even the towels and glove on the dugout wall seem to droop. The dugout shows the power of art. Rockwell's painting made the Cubs' image as lovable losers into an icon. And in the decades that followed, they played like their painting. So when a black cat strolled by the Cubs' dugout, or a fan reached for a foul over a Cubs fielder. It looked like whatever farce that made Uncle Charlie wince had come back to life. It was the Cubs' image that stuck until last year, when they won the World Series for the first time in 108 years. Now I'm overjoyed to see the Cubs win, but I also worry a little if those of us who are fans will be as loyal to a team that doesn't seem to need our love as much now that they're national darlings. Uncle Charlie, by the way, was actually a dapper guy, no basset hound, who finally made his peace with Rockwell's painting. Charlie Grimm didn't make it to the Hall of Fame, but he knew that Rockwell's portrait put him into history. I'm Jane Pauley. Please join us here again next Sunday morning. If you like CBS Sunday Morning with Jane Polly, you can listen early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Apple Podcasts. Prime members can listen ad-free on Amazon Music. Before you go, tell us about yourself by filling out a short survey at wondery.com survey.